Almighty would have honor and respect in this age, but we're told that we won't. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so it is with our fathers in Egypt. They experienced the blessings of childbirth, yes. But with those blessings of God come attacks from the enemy and his kingdom. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the, money, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So the new Pharaoh arises, a new Pharaoh who does not know Joseph. Now, does not know probably means something like does not recognize or respect um, what he undoubtedly did know is that these people were foreigners, but they were united foreigners in our midst. And they're becoming more and more numerous, and that is a dangerous thing. Now, I can imagine that any pharaoh of the time would have thought so. Because however you date the Exodus, whether the, the early date of 1447 B.C. or the late date of 1250, either way, you're, you're talking about a time in Egypt's history that is after foreigners had ruled. Uh, it's known as the Hyksos period. It's a period when foreigners from Canaan ruled over Egypt. It didn't last very long couple of dynasties, it's an embarrassment in Egyptian history, and the Egyptians quickly kicked them out. But we already saw in, in Genesis some of that xenophobia in, in the Egyptian culture. Well, it's, it's on display now in full because they have been ruled by foreign oppressors, and it's an embarrassment. Now, we noted that xenophobia that hatred of foreigners that we see in Egypt, uh, it was a good thing for Israel. It was a good thing that Egypt wanted nothing to do with them. They hated Hebrews. They hated shepherds. So Israel was isolated in its infancy. Just like a parent might uh, homeschool for a while or, or at least try to find a setting where their child might not be so mercilessly attacked by the world, well, so God gave Israel some space to grow by letting them be hated. So a Pharaoh arises who does not share any sense of loyalty to Joseph, no gratitude to Joseph and his family. You know, I expect to see the Pharaoh of Joseph's day. I expect to see him in glory. I may be wrong, but I expect to see that Pharaoh in glory, not this guy. This guy becomes the great depiction of our enemy, the devil. 
And we're given just a, a few little snapshots to set his character in our minds. And, and I think that's the point of these initial stories. The first thing he tries to do, is, first attempt, first strategy he tries is to oppress them with, with hard labor. It's a burdensome duty. Not only do they have to provide for their own households, now they have this burden for the crown that they have to meet. So that's the first thing he tries, hard labor. But, you know, and that's going to be the thing. It's going to get worse and worse. It's going to be uh, the thing that becomes just unbearable. It's going to be the thing that, that the people cry out over and that God hears. But it's a failure at the beginning here. The harder they worked, the more babies they had. So we're introduced to the mind of our enemy in a second attempt. We see, a, his, we see his genocidal impulse, first privately and then publicly. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, I wouldn't get too bogged down in how there are only two Hebrew midwives for a population of maybe two million um, this could have just been a local policy in the capital of Memphis. Uh, it, it's clearly not a widely publicized policy. This is not something Pharaoh wanted to be known. The idea is that as the midwife, in the act of delivery, as soon as she recognizes the sex, she's to act. If the boy, if the baby's a boy, it's to appear stillborn. She's supposed to somehow kill the baby and not let the parents know what's going on. I say that because of the midwife's excuse being accepted here. It's too late. We can't do it now. Baby's here. But the midwives feared God and what? Now, don't try to figure out a way that the midwives aren't really lying to Pharaoh. They disobeyed his order, plain and simple. They did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. I know they gave, they gave some cockamamie excuse about the Hebrew women delivering too fast. Is that a desperate lie? Is that mocking the Egyptians? It might be both, uh, but there's, there's certainly deception here. And the midwives are blessed. So that demands a little explanation, doesn't it? 
Strictly speaking now, strictly speaking, the midwives are blessed not so much for lying as for the righteous act that occasioned the lie, for their fear of God. That's what they're blessed for. But God cannot lie, Hebrews 6. Now, it's not that God does not use deceitful spirits. He certainly does. We see that in 1 Kings 22. But lying, like murder, are what is characteristic of our enemy, the devil, of his kingdom, and of our very fallen flesh, the old man in us all. We know how to lie. We know how to hate. Jesus addressing those who were trying to quash the revelation of God in his day says, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of all lies. So what can we say? I think we can say that lying is wrong. Broadly stated, lying is wrong. Paul puts liars in the same category as sexually immoral people, as enslavers. Listen, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so God is calling a people to himself out of the world People's to cast off the God of this age and his ways. We're to crucify those deceitful desires that continue to persist and plague us even though we've been freed from them. So lying is wrong, period. Murder is wrong, period. And yet, brothers and sisters, what about in time of war? Is it murder? No. There's a distinction drawn, isn't there? Likewise, deception is expected. It's even demanded in warfare. Deception isn't always sin. If you and I play basketball and I fake left and go right, I've deceived you. Have I lied? Have I sinned? I don't think so. Well, let's consider the situation the midwives face. Yes, they, obey, they, they owe obedience and truth to the king that God has set over them, just like you and I do. And yet, God is the one who set this king over them. We have a higher allegiance than that of the crown. When the crown rebelliously sets itself against the very God that established its power, but by demanding that you sin. Those who are true subjects of the king must reject the mutiny and say no. 
What Pharaoh commands of the midwives here, demands of the midwives, is it's unconscionable, isn't it? It is never safe to go against your conscience. Now, your conscience is tainted by sin, so it's no safe guide to what's okay. But when your conscience is screaming, no way, you better listen. And the midwives did. What do I make of the fact that they didn't just own it? That they didn't just say, we're not going to do that. Or they just said, because your order was ungodly. I think I see the real world struggle that believers face, don't you? It's easy to be bold and bluster about what we would do. But if you were in their position, what would you do? So maybe that's what they should have done. But what they do is, okay, while it's a lie, it's mockery. Um, oh, those poor Egyptian women, they need such help, and it takes forever. But the Hebrew women, oh, they're vigorous on the birthstone. We don't even get there in time to do what you want us to. Now, this policy does not last. Um, because it wasn't followed. The next policy doesn't last either. Uh, his own daughter flaunts the policy and adopts a little Hebrew boy. So it's, it's clearly a short-lived folly. The point is not the extent of the genocide here. It's the depravity of it. And you can't be familiar with the Christmas story, the visits of the Magi and the, the murderous order to kill all the baby boys of Bethlehem Again, a local and short-lived order, but depraved. You see, our enemy is bent on destroying the church. So, so Pharaoh is troubled by these Hebrews getting so numerous. And the midwives play right into that prejudice and fear. Was it wrong? Maybe. Though this is clearly an act of mutiny against the God of creation, Right? Um, the God who set Pharaoh on his throne. We just read through the jo story of Joseph. If nothing else was clear in this narrative of Joseph, it has to be that God is sovereign and sets on whatever throne there is, whatever king he wants to be there. So he throws himself against God, whom the midwives worship in fear. What are they supposed to do? May they not regard this as an act of war. <laughs> but is that their decision to make? Do you see how these are, these are very hard questions? And yet what we find is that God is gracious to them. He rewards them for their greater fear of him than any fear they might have had of Pharaoh. That's the issue. It's a contrast of fear. Pharaoh will set himself up as one who does not fear Yahweh. And these two women are a, a foil to Pharaoh. Two lowly servant women stand against Pharaoh, most powerful man in the world. And because Yahweh is sovereign, he buys their cockamamie story hook, line, and sinker because they fear Yahweh rather than men, he blesses them. 
you know, there's, there's a lot for us to, to take away from the book of Exodus. So far, we've already seen God's faithfulness to his people as they multiply according to his promise. They are a, a bright new creation within the old, multiplying and filling the earth like God commanded. And God's going to continue to bless them and deliver them and fulfill his promises. But as God's chosen people, they are immediately subjected to suffering and persecution. You know, when Paul set out on his first missionary journey, he preached the gospel, you know, he, he goes up and goes through uh, Asia Minor, and he's preaching the gospel at the cities as he comes to them. And then when he comes to the end and it's time to go home, he visits those churches on his way home, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, listen, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So that's the first reality of your existence as a child of God in this world. You will be hated for it. And we also have set before us such a clear representation of our enemy and his opposition to the Lord. We, we see it in... I mean, what he does is it's senseless, it's cruel, it's driven by fear and hatred, and yet, and yet that senseless, cruel wrath is what we're called to endure. By God's strength, resting in his power to deliver us, to carry us through those trials. You know, this is going to be a great book to work through. We'll be introduced to our Savior, Jesus Christ, as he's prefigured for us in, in Moses. And we'll see three things about God come shining through. His power, which we've already begun to, see, begun to see in Genesis. His power as he delivers his people. His holiness as he demands that his people live a certain way. And he's going to live among them, and he's holy. And his mercy, as he forgives failure and rebellion, and patiently and lovingly guides this petulant people toward their inheritance. We're a petulant people too. And our God is so kind. And you're going to see how tender and kind he is at the same time, you're going to see how holy it is, and that's going to be demanding of us. As we grasp His holiness more and more, we're going to be challenged. We're called to holiness. We're given an alien righteousness, yes, but none of us have arrived. We'll see our own failures and the failures of our fathers, and perhaps we'll even learn to repent and perhaps even maybe be able to stand in places where they fell. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would bless us as we delve into this great work of your redemption, this book of Exodus. We ask that you give us insight into your great redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Give us insight even to the, the, the promise in its seed form. And uh, turn our hearts to you, Lord. Help us to recognize how powerful you are. Help us to stand with courage and faith against the onslaught of the world and the enemy. Help us to put to death the, the sinful desires of our flesh that continue to plague our walk with you. Grant us 
Lord, grant us success in the pursuit of the holiness without which none of us will see the Lord. We ask it for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.